This message first aired on the radio on June 30th, 2003. We're looking at the scriptures. I don't know if you heard the rousing conversation about geology here uh, and the uh, state of the earth and what the flood did and didn't do. I'm not here to talk about the age of the earth. I have an opinion, but it's not time for me to give it. But I am here to talk about the mysteries of the kingdom of the heavens as disclosed in Matthew, the 13th chapter. And I want to say that this is one of the most interesting parts of the Scripture. I consider Matthew 13, as other uh, Bible students uh, have, uh, better Bible students than myself, by the way, have considered it a key to the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, indeed it is. It's, it's more than a key to the Gospel of Matthew, but it certainly is a key to the Gospel of Matthew. And the Gospel of Matthew appears at the front of your New Testament because it is a key to the rest of that book. What we, uh, the book that we call the New Testament of the final uh, books of the Scripture from the time of the Lord's ministry. And we've been going one by one through the parables that the Lord gave as he began to speak parabolically in the day that Israel rejected him. And uh, unbeknownst, really, to Israel, in the day that they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, he rejected them in the sense of this he began to set them aside. Now, the fact of Israel setting aside is uh, is laid out, and we talked about it last time. It's laid out as a mystery of the Scripture, and we find that uh, mystery detailed in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And I trust that uh, if you were listening uh, last Friday or if you've uh, listened to the broadcast on the web, which you're, which you're able to do, uh, even the archive broadcasts, you learned that that, that mystery uh, was the seed truth of that mystery could be found in the Lord's parabolic teaching in Ma- here in Matthew chapter 13. And then those mysteries are flushed out or fleshed out, you might say, uh, detailed out through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, who also had a ministry of mysteries. Uh, to remind us, mysteries are not things that we do not understand or that we cannot understand, as the connotation of the word, of the English word mystery uh, might, at least today, lead us to believe. In fact, the mysteries of Scripture, meaning the secrets, are the kind of things we like about a secret. What do we like about secrets? Well, we like to know what they are. We don't like to have them kept from us. We like to have them disclosed to us. So these secrets or mysteries uh, concerning the kingdom of the heavens in this particular case, and there are other secrets, uh, are disclosed to us. And in the Lord's ministry, these secrets are disclosed to us in seed form. That is to say, they're not fully laid out. They're just the germ, I won't say seed form, uh, but I say the germ of truth is found in the beginning of the Lord's ministry and through his teaching, and then it's continued in the Lord's ministry through the apostles. And it was given to the apostle Paul to fill up and finish out much of the mystery teaching uh, of the Scripture. So I give you an overall context. As you may realize, uh, as we've declared here at BibleStudy.net through this, this broadcast, one of our purposes, if not the main purpose, of the broadcast is to try to lay a foundation or try to impart 
uh, an outline of Scripture. We can deduce from the reading of Scripture that if we don't have an outline of it, uh, we'll not uh, have, uh, if we don't have the outline of it or the form of sound words, then we won't have anywhere to put the Scriptures as we learn them. We won't have a good place to put them, and that will leave us with a deficiency in understanding God's Word. And friend of mine, let me say that God's Word is what we have today. All that you see will pass away. As the Lord Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my Word will not pass away. And so if you want something of lasting value, if you want something that's going to stick with you, if you want something to carry into the next age, if you want if you want to take something past the grave, it's going to be the Word of God, and it's going to be the Word of God only. They will say of you when you die, the same that they said of wealthy men such as J.P. Morgan, how much did he leave? He left everything. But what you can take with you, and this is also, well, that's the... Let's just say it's not a mystery, but I think it's something of a secret. What you can take with you is that which you obtain from the Word of God. So now, that being said, we've gone through, we're, we're going through the seven parables that are the mysteries of the kingdom of the heavens in Matthew 13, and we're on our, we're on our sixth parable, and it's a tremendous, tremendous uh, uh, parable, and uh, I, I am eager to get into it. Uh, but before I do, let me just review that the parables are conveniently and logically broken into a set of four and a set of three parables. The set of four parables are broken by dramatic action insofar as the Lord delivered them to the multitude outside the house. So we have in the text of the Scripture in Matthew 13, the dramatic action of the Lord found in the first verse, the same day went Jesus out of the house, and sat by the seaside. And then again, we have in verse 36, then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. That action by the Lord opens the teaching of the parables in the first, in the first place to the first four parables. And then after the fourth parable, which is the kingdom of the heavens is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. After this parable, the Lord went into the house, and once in the house, he disclosed to his disciples the meaning of the parable of the tares, and that was enough for them to understand all the four parables that he had taught them, uh, having already given, by the way, the interpretation of the first parable while outside the house. Now inside the house, having given the uh, interpretation of the second parable, the parable of the tares, he takes up three parables which which really hang together, and they hang together in your King James Bible around the word again. So in verse 44, again, the kingdom of the heavens is like unto a treasure hid in a field. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of the heavens is like unto a merchant man seeking godly pearls. Verse 47, again, the kingdom of the heavens is like unto a net that was cast out into the sea. And so we have these three parables together, connected to the first four parables and connected to each other with this word again, uh, uh, this word uh, translated again. And so in the, in the linkage now, these three, we should be able to see some parallel to them. And let me say they're stacked. Uh, these, these final three of the seven parables are stacked. They're stacked in time, they're stacked in, in topic, 
and subject matter, and they're properly uh, matched up with one of the great divisions of Scripture. And in that, remember that Paul told Timothy to give diligence, the word study, give diligence, we we uh, we take our we take the English word study is a translation of the words be diligent study to show yourself approved unto God not to men but to God now it's the the approval of God is very different than the approval of men in some cases it may be easier in some cases it may be more difficult but certainly God's approval or His approbation is different than that of men so give diligence to show yourself approved unto God as a workman a workman rightly dividing or cutting straight the word of truth. I think the New American Standard reads accurately handling. That's a good understanding of it, but it's not an accurate translation of that term, orthotomeo, which is to say to cut straight or to set straight, to cut straight. And then we remember that, okay, so Paul told Timothy, cut straight the word of God, and we know that the apostle had a detailed knowledge of what it meant to cut straight, because after all, he's a tent maker, and tent makers, I'm certain, need to cut straight, and that that is fundamental as a as a beginning before one's work can be done well. Uh, I'm sure that a tent maker, if he had crooked material, no matter how good he is with the thread, and and no matter what how good a seamster he is, uh, would he be able to make a good tent? had he not cut the material straight to begin with. And that's what we have to do with the Word of God. No matter, how, no matter how much we study it, no matter how much we look into it, if we don't divide it properly, we'll have a mess on our hands. And frankly today, friends, one of the great challenges in understanding God's Word is to have it cut, is to cut it straightly. So I'm going to suggest to you that I am cutting the Word of God straightly, in this case, in dividing out the, especially these final three parables, because I have uh, the principle uh, observable in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where the apostle exhorts the Corinthians, wherefore you eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Verse 32, give none offense neither to the Jews nor to the Gentiles nor to the church of God. And I believe one principle is laid out here that there are three groups. There are three elections of God. There are elect Jews. There are elect Gentiles. And there is the elect church of God. These are three distinguishable elections uh, or calling outs by God that if we if we cut those division straightly, if we distinguish between Jews and Gentiles and Church of God, and we keep those distinctions in mind, we'll understand better and keep ourselves from applying that which does not apply to one one group uh, to the other group. And that's what we find in these three parables. The first parable, the kingdom of the heavens like unto a hid treasure, applies to Israel. And remember, it was hid in a field, and a man found that treasure and hid it again and sold all that he had to buy, not the treasure, but to buy the field. And what a wonderful story and what a wonderful parallel that is with our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we have another parable which is not about Israel, and we just read it. And remember that it is a germinal truth, so we don't expect to find everything in here, but we do expect to find it consistent. Whatever interpretation we give to the parable, we have to find it consistent 
uh, throughout the rest of Scripture, forward and backward. So let's read it. It's just a couple of verses. Again, the kingdom of the heavens is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he has found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So now we have uh, a very interesting parable. It's especially interesting because the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a Jew, is giving out this parable because he's talking about a merchant man, and, of course, a merchant man is a man who goes far away and then comes back home. Uh, a merchant man, uh, one of the things that, uh, especially in the context of, uh, of a merchant in the time of the, of the Lord's earthly ministry, a merchant was somebody who had to leave home for a period of time and go a long ways away, and he would go find something of great value and then come back home with it. Here he says, Again, the kingdom of heavens is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, and it's the word is plural, pearls. He's out looking for pearls. And what does this merchant man find when he gets to the place where he looks? He finds one pearl of, of inestimable value, of great price. Just one. Not He went looking for pearls, but in fact found one pearl of inestimable, inestimable price, and went went and sold everything that he had and bought it. Now, we have a, a couple of pieces of parallel that we need to be consistent about. So when we looked at the kingdom of the heavens like unto a treasure, we found a man that sold all that he had, and we said that is indicative, that, that is parabolic teaching uh, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ's death that he sold everything that he had, that he laid his life down. In fact, uh, that's an accurate, uh, I think that's an accurate portrayal. Of course, uh, here I am saying I'm accurate. Uh, what value is my second statement? Um, but the reason why it's it's appropriate is because the Bible seems to indicate, like, for example, in the book of Job, Job's challenge to God is, skin for skin, all that a man has will he give for his life. In fact, a man's riches in the Bible are said to be his ransom. That is to say that no matter how wealthy you are, you'll give everything you have to keep your life. So what does it mean when someone lays their life down? Well, truly then, as the Lord Jesus Christ did, he laid down his life. He didn't cast it aside carelessly or waste his life, but he laid it down purposefully. And he took it up again, but he laid his life down. Truly, he's the man that sold everything that he had. And you remember that we say we don't sell everything we have for Christ. He is the one who sold everything he had for us. There are those who will interpret this parable, and wrongly so, that said this is the that the that the pearl is another is another picture of the gospel, which as a merchant man, a wanderer someone looking for things. The, the, the sinner looks and looks for the gospel. He's looking for lots of gospels, I guess. And then he finds the one that is the greatest gospel, which is the gospel according to Jesus Christ, to the Lord Jesus Christ, or the gospel of the good news concerning uh, uh, eternal life through faith in Christ, and sells everything he has and buys the gospel. Well, my friend, you don't buy the gospel. You don't sell everything you have. What kind of a gift would it be if you had to sell everything you have to obtain it? 
No, the gift of God is eternal life. Salvation is a free gift. Uh, it, it, it was earned. Salvation is free to you, but it is not that it is not earned. It is an earned free gift. It's just earned by another. And the Lord Jesus Christ paid the full price for eternal life, and he's the one who sold all that he had. He's the one who gave his life. Me, I didn't have to give anything to God to receive eternal life. I merely had to receive my Lord Jesus Christ, and eternal life is mine. So I won't belabor that point and beat it to death, but again, we just find the parallel that how we interpret the kingdom of the heavens as a, as the, in the hit parable the hid treasure, we have to be consistent. When we find somebody that sold all he had, we should immediately begin to think that must be the Lord Jesus Christ. So here again, now, the Lord Jesus Christ pictured as a merchant man who goes, for a, who goes a far place. And, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ did go a long ways. He left his father's home, and he came into this world uh, that you can't go any further than that. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ went a long way like a merchant man, seeking uh, the lost. That's what he said. He sought in the, the, the parable as many pearls. Now, here's where it becomes very interesting for a Jew to teach this, because as we have know, uh, pearls come from, uh, are, are uh, produced by oysters. Pearls are in association with oysters. We don't see any pearls in the Old Testament. You don't see any pearls on the breastplate of Aaron. You don't see any pearls as marked as precious gems anywhere in the in the Old Testament. Uh, and and in fact, the book of Leviticus teaches us that the oyster itself, because it doesn't have uh, because it doesn't have fins, is an unclean uh, animal. The oyster is an unclean animal. The, the mussel, also called a mussel, at least by the Irish, that's what Molly Malone sold. That oyster, ugly-looking thing, isn't it? Uh, a horrible-looking thing, unclean uh, sea creature. And you remember that when we think of the sea, we think of the Gentiles. And so we have here the, 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 this man looking for pearls. He's looking for oysters. He's looking for the fruit of oysters. And uh, that would be a calling, that would call our attention to it to the parable. So we, we see in this uh, that, that fact. Now, it says he finds one pearl of great price and sells all that he has, not for many pearls, but for one pearl of inestimable value. And so w we need to really think about pearls for a minute in order to understand this parable. And when we think about pearls and when we consider the oyster and the formation of the pearl, we're going to find out that this parable does not lay out for us all about the church of God, but that this parable applies to the church of God. We'll find that out germinally, and we'll go look later in the New Testament and see if our interpretation of it, of it fits. So now we find that the Lord Jesus Christ not only died specifically for the nation of Israel, but he also died, he sold all that he had, for the church, which is his body. And I'll tell you another group that the Lord died for, but it's nothing that we're going to do about it today, is that the, the Lord Jesus Christ also died for the Gentiles, and he was zealous about that. Uh, that is the one truth that Israel seemed to have set aside as they didn't care about the Gentiles. So let's talk about pearls for a minute. And uh, we've, we mentioned that the oyster, a sea creature that 
is declared unclean in uh, uh, qualifies as unclean in the book of Leviticus. One of the injunctions of Israel is that they were free to eat of everything that was in the water as long as it had fins and scales, uh, whether uh, whether salt water or fresh water, they could eat that. Well, if you know the oyster, if you've seen that, I don't know. I find it ugly, and I don't like to eat oysters myself. But if you if you look at them, you'll notice that uh, they're they're a crustacean and they're in a shell, and they have neither fin nor scale, let alone both. So we we hearken to that and say this has to do with something not Jewish. This has to do with something something Gentile. It's in the seas. We find the oyster in the seas. They're found in the Persian Gulf. They're found in the Far East. There is such a thing as a freshwater oyster, but they're a bit rare, and their their pearls are of little value. But now the the thing about the oyster that that the merchant with the merchant man wasn't seeking oysters. He wasn't trying to feed the Gentiles. He was looking for godly pearls. And so we want to talk about the pearl. And I'd pointed out that the pearl, not uh, found as a precious uh, stone anywhere in the Old Testament. In fact, it's not really a stone, is it? The pearl, though it's regarded as a stone, it is a stone. It's not a stone. And I'll suggest to you that the pearl is the closest thing we can find to a living stone because the, the, while it, it's not a stone, it, it looks like a stone. It kind of acts like a stone, but it is actually formed out of a living creature. And so we might say it's a living stone. And, of course, the reason I make that analog is because the church of God is, is called, you then as living stones are builded together into a holy temple unto the Lord. So that, that, that's one thing we see about the, about the pearl. The other thing we know about the pearl is that it's formed, the way that it's formed is an irritation comes in and disturbs the oyster. A piece of sand or some other irritation uh, finds its way into the uh, shell of the oyster and the oyster then begins to secrete, actually it secretes uh, something called nacre, which is a compound of calcium carbonate. We, it's also called mother of pearl, the secretion. But the oyster secretes from the irritation, sec- makes this secretion uh, around the, irrita- the irritant. Let me tell you that uh, there's, something has irritated God. There is something that irritates God, our Lord Jesus Christ, and that sin. Uh, the sinner is an irritant uh, to God. But what does God do in response to the irritant? Does he reject it? No. He gives his life for it. And let me assure you this. God loved the world as irritating as the world is to him. And the, 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 the Lord Jesus Christ, like the oyster does, gives his life for the sake of the pearl. Because after all, when the oyster's all finished, he's dead. After he's formed the pearl, in fact, the, the, the oyster dies in forming the pearl. Now, the layers of secretion of nacre, or mother of pearl, uh, really indicate to us the application. If an oyster has blood, the nacre, or mother of pearl, is that which it is. So layer after layer of this blood of the oyster is formed upon the irritant, and that it, that, that the continual application of, we could say, the blood of the oyster uh, is that which forms pearl. Something else that's interesting about pearls as compared to, for example, uh, precious stones or gems, 
the uh, a precious stone such as a such as a diamond will be found in the rough. You wouldn't even notice a diamond if you went to Zaire and you found diamonds laying all over the place. The, the, unless you're studied, the likelihood that you would recognize what is a diamond is not very good, or so I'm told. But a diamond gains its value by being cut and polished. And, and being cut, uh, you start out with a good piece of material, but then cutting it is, a, is an art, and to cut it just right is very important, and then to polish it. A pearl is not like that. In fact, if you were to divide, to divide the pearl by cutting it, if you were to divide it in any way, you would destroy all value of the pearl. The other aspect of the pearl is it needs no polish. In fact, the pearl is of great value when it's formed, when it's properly formed. The rounder the pearl, the greater the value. And, of course, that's just how it becomes formed uh, in the oyster. And it's interesting that it's, it's really the pearl is transformed. It's hidden until it's totally produced. I'm reminded of the scripture that says your life is hid with God in Christ. And so the, the, other, the other aspect of the, of the pearl that's really contradistinctive to other precious stones, other precious stones gain their contrast, are beautiful as they are contrasted. For example, a diamond, you lay it on a piece of black material, and there you see how it shines, but a, a pearl is translucent. That is to say, there is a there is a, a light that that it does light up a little bit, but the the luster of the of the pearl is not really demonstrable until it until it's contrasted onto human skin or placed on human skin, where it picks up the luster of human skin. So again, it's intended to be, as it were, finding its uh, uh, great value with you on you and me or or our wives anyway so so we have all this about the pearl and so with that amount of evidence i'm just suggesting to you of course that and i i trust i'm not forcing anything here i i trust i'm just making appropriate observations about the pearl that that this appertains to the church of god now one might rightly say well there's no uh, I, I would hope one would rightly say there's no church of god in Matthew 13 you don't see the church of God no we don't we we don't see christianity at the time let me put it this way we don't see it at the time uh of the lord's ministry we don't see christianity or christendom either but in the parable itself we see it in the parable of the sower we see really the state of the believer within christianity in the in the parable of the tares we see the condition of the world at the time of, of, of our Christian experience. The, the same with the other parables that we've seen. With Israel, we also see it in the context of the Christian dispensation, or the time that we're now in, because we see Israel having been hidden, uh, being found by the man, and being hidden again. And so Israel, in its mystery form, is what we see in the parable of the hid treasure. Now in the parable of the pearl of great price, we see the mystery form of the church, which is his body. And that's fleshed out for us really in the epistles. And so I want to take the rest of the time that we have today to just lay out a few things, certainly not treat the subject in any kind of uh, comprehensive way, just lay out a few things about the church, which is his body, uh, for our benefit so that we we have these hooks for our thoughts to hang on 
uh, from the outline of the parables of Matthew 13. So when we think of the church, which is his body, and I suggest to you that it's represented by one pearl of great price, one of the things we know about the church, which is his body, is it's indivisible. You, you, uh, uh, you do not cut a, a member off of your body and it, and it functions. That's just not the way it is. The body needs to be totally connected. It needs to be one in order to be an effective body. And when I think of that, I think of the unity that is, supposed, that is given in the Christian church. Now, unity is different than union. There is no need for churches to join up. There are no, there, there's no reason for, for Christians to sit down and see why they should get together or how they can get together. There's no need for that because the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace is part of the gift of God. I'm looking now at Ephesians chapter 4 where the apostle writes, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the calling wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. You know, here we have some of these one another's. I just want to make a little aside, friend of mine, you cannot do any one another's if you're not a, a part, a member of a local church. The church which is his body is locally expressed, the one another's of the Scripture must be done in the context of the local church. And so I, I make an emphasis because here at BibleStudy.net, I make an emphasis of, of the local church because this is a ministry in association with and subject to a local church, which is Christ's body expressed in this community. Now, I'm not of one to say there's only one uh, expression of Christ's body locally. I I don't adhere to that teaching. There is that teaching around. I don't adhere to it. Uh, but we do have a, all who are born again have a unity that is given at the time of the new birth. We are given so many things when we're born again, including the new nature. And in that new nature, we have, for example, verse 3 of Ephesians 4, endeavoring, not only do we forbear one another in love, but we endeavor to keep, not establish, but to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I've been in a few churches in, during my Christian life, and I find that there is there is not a lot of endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. There does seem to be a fair amount of endeavoring to divide uh, the unity that God has given. So there is a unity of the Spirit and peace that God gives us one with another as we're born again. There is one body, one spirit, as you're called in, even as you're called in, one hope of your calling. It's an emphasis we made before. I'd be remiss to let it go. We all, every child of God, every born-again believer, and that's the only believers there are today, has one hope of the calling. We do not have separate hopes. You do not have a list of hopes. There is no boutique of hopes where the Christian shops and selects one. We have one hope of our calling, and I suggest to you that our hope of our calling is we sure hope that we're pleasing to the Lord when we rendezvous with Him. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and that's water baptism, my friend. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So th there is this unity, and one of the things that's supposed to mark the church, which is his body, is the coordinated unity that it represents. 
You see, if, if, if you could envision me sitting before you, uh, somehow with uh, my head invisible to you, uh, say covered with a, with a, with a towel or uh, somehow uh, uh, you are unable to see my head, and yet I manipulate my hands in front of you and I put my fingers together on top of each other and I shake my hands and I wash one hand with the other hand and I uh, can touch each other, I touch my elbows, uh, so forth, you would say, well, you know, the way those hands are moving, there must be a presiding mind behind that. Look how coordinated those members move together. There must be a coordination, there must be a presiding mind. In fact, you would infer a head. You would infer a head. You'd say, there's a presiding mind, there's a central intelligence here, there's some thing, someone who is coordinating all this activity I see. That is how the church of God, which is his body, is supposed to behave. In such a way that people say, well, look how they love one another. Look how they conduct themselves one with another. That is some evidence that there is a head somewhere, although I can't see him. There is some head somewhere coordinating all of this activity. My friend, that is how the church is to be. The church is to be one. That does not mean union. That does not that does not infer anything like some of the political movements that are have been abreast really since the church first was noticed in the world and and uh, the enemy planted tares in the midst of the believers. The, the, there is no there is no necessary. Uh, alliances that need to be made. There are no denominations that need to be formed. This, The unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace and the unity that Christians have is the gift of God, and all we need to do is keep it. We don't need to establish it. And if you don't go out of your way to damage it, or if you don't let others go out of their way to damage it, that unity is there. You meet a child of God, Say, I'm a child of God. Immediately there is a unity, a sevenfold unity of the Spirit, and it's there to enjoy. And if, my friend, if you don't experience that, if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, you need to get out and meet some Christians and enjoy fellowship one with another. Now, that being said, we want to talk about how it is that the apostle uh, really was given the task of completing the teaching concerning the mystery of the church which is his body. And in fact, that is what the apostle said really occupied his life. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you word. Now, here, by the way, those who prate upon people saying that they're dispensational this is a good Bible word. This is the word the apostle uses and said that, uh, that a dispensation of the grace of God was given to he, him, the apostle Paul. And then he goes on to detail it in verse 3 of Ephesians 3, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. So this mystery uh, of the pearl of great price, a germ truth of Scripture, was was given by revelation to the Apostle Paul. And by the way, it wasn't given to others. That's why Peter uh, understood in his epistle that Paul had been given the Scriptures, even some things which were difficult to understand. 
So he's how by revelation. And friends, you don't need any revelation today. There is no revelation going on today. The only revelation today that that goes on is the revelation that Jesus Christ is the the Son of the Living God. That is given to you by your Father in heaven when you're born again. All revelation that God has to give has been written in the Scripture, and now we have the wonderful opportunity to read all that has been revealed. The silence of our Lord Jesus Christ during this age is as important as the fact of what he has spoken. But to the Apostle Paul, revelation was given. To the Apostle John, revelation was given. To us, light is given, and we need to be illuminated by the Holy Spirit of God so that we can understand the revelation that has been given, for example, to the Apostle Paul. How that by revelation he made known unto me, verse 3, Ephesians 3, the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, and I suggest to you that may be the book of Romans, especially at the end, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that what? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all the saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship or the dispensation, really the word dispensation, oconomia, the economy or dispensation of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places by me be known by the church the wisdom of God. We're looking at the pearl of great price. We're looking at the church, which is his body, and we're suggesting that the that, that parable in Matthew 13 uh, about the pearl of great price really envisions or pre, presages the great mystery teaching which the apostle lays out in vast detail, beginning, perhaps beginning in the book of Romans, hinted at, I think we can see it hinted at, certainly uh, pretty well, in 1 Corinthians, we see it uh, written about uh, to some extent in a few words, as the Apostle uh, may be saying in the book of Ephesians about the book of Romans. We see it then asserted again in the book of Colossians, uh, and we see it uh, laid out in vast, uh, well, I say vast, but we see it laid out in detail, in enough detail, in the book of the Ephesians. Now, this truth concerning the mystery of the church, which is his body, friends, is that which is central to the testimony of Christians. It is central to God's purpose in the church to make all see what is the dispensation of the mystery. That That is what was given for Paul to do to the intent. We look at Ephesians 3, verse 10 to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. I'm uh, a little bit disturbed. I enjoy the evangelical thrust and the, uh, the initiative and the desire to see men and women come to Christ. Of course, that is something very important to understand as a Christian, 
once we understand how it is that Christ found us, we realize that Christ also has others that he wants to find, and wonderfully he may use us to, to, to do that work. But I'm a little disturbed that that is what all that Christians believe is, the pur- is their purpose here below, to uh, evangelize the world, uh, not according to Ephesians chapter 3. According to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, God's intention is to demonstrate unto principalities and powers in heavenly places his manifold wisdom through the church, which is his body. And I think this is lost. I think when the church comes together, it is a very few number of people or very few churches that really try to understand that, that God's intention in the church is not, re, is not merely earthward. It is not merely earthward. In fact, God's intention, he has ar- arranged for us to be wrestling against wicked spirits in heavenly places. Our, we're a heavenly people. God has a heavenly seed, which is the church, which is his body. God has an earthly seed, which is Israel in particular, and also Gentiles uh, in connection with Israel. But God's purpose in the church is to demonstrate his manifold wisdom in the heavenly places. And when the churches come together, as it we're taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there is a heavenward testimony. In fact, if you'll read 1 Corinthians 11, you'll see there, for example, that a woman is, is, to, is to cover her hair because her hair is her glory. She is the glory of the man. Man is the glory of Christ, therefore it, his glory is, it, he is to be uncovered so that Christ's glory could show because of what? Because of the angels. So it concludes that a woman ought to have a symbol of authority or power, dunamis, on her head because of the angels. I remember when I was a little boy, of course I wasn't Christian, but everything called Christian, everything even called Christian, such as Romanism or whatever that is called Christian but certainly is not, the women would cover their heads. I remember, uh, uh, as I grew up here in Omaha, just east of my home, a few blocks, I grew up near Salem Baptist Church, uh, not just just to the west of it, a little bit. And I remember on Sunday afternoons, uh, being a Catholic, I'd whiz into into Catholic Mass and uh, you know count tiles or whatever it is I did to pass that time, come out, and uh, I would notice if I went a little bit east uh, eastward. That, that the Baptists to, to the east would would dress in their finest clothes and would spend all day with one another, uh, and the women all had their hats on, different kinds of hats. I remember thinking, wow, these people, they really uh, spend a lot of time. They seem to have a good time. Uh, I can't stand uh, being uh, uh, in the temple where I was. Uh, I called it a church at that time, but I know better now. These people seem to be very, uh, very enjoying what they're doing. But here's the fact that I want to get to. All the women had their heads covered. Now, they may not know why, but the Bible said because of the angels. Now, I'm not going to talk about the head covering anymore today, although it is a practice that should be done in churches, except to say this. I think one of the reasons that we lose such symbolic practices is because we lose the underlying principle that God intends to show to the principalities and powers his wisdom by the assembled church. And that also, by the way, when the angelic conflict rises up at the time of the end, I believe that's also why the book of Ephesians tells us that we should come together more and more often as we see the day drawing near. One of the, I'd say one of the advances that that, uh, maybe I've experienced as a Christian 
is I used to, quote, go to church uh, because people were requiring it of me. Uh, I was in a church where going to a meeting was a mandatory thing, and it was just a, it was just a, a horrible uh, uh, legal uh, matter. And if you didn't go, everybody was asking you where you were and why you weren't there. Actually, it was awful. But it wasn't. But I did enjoy the people. Uh, the preaching was bad, but I did enjoy my brothers and sisters. But today, I look forward to meeting with the believers more than anything else that I do. It is an enjoyable thing. It is not is not merely enjoyable, but God calls us together to demonstrate his wisdom in the heavenly places. As verse 11 says of Ephesians chapter 3, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by his faith. And I, and I want to just say that God has bigger purposes than men do. God's purpose is not to make the world a better place to live. And God's purpose is bigger than merely seeing other people be saved or believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to say this. Don't you, you, don't, you do not need to worry about whether people will be saved. The, God, that is God's business. God will see to it that people will be saved. There is not anyone that is going to go to the lake of fire because I don't talk to them. I will be judged according to my obedience, according to my works, while in my Christian life. If God tells me to talk to somebody and I don't do it, uh, I'll be dealt with about that by the Lord. And if I'm not reminded here, I'll be reminded when I see him at the judgment seat. But that person is not going to the lake of fire, as some say, trying to compel me to do their will, uh, because I didn't speak the word of God to them. God will see to it that the word of God is spoken to to them. Now, so some will say, well, you're against evangelism. I'll stand on my record when it comes to evangelism. And I'll tell you this also, my friend. If you think that you need to save somebody, that somebody is in trouble. That somebody is in big trouble if you need to be the one that saves them. God will save whom he will save and we don't have to worry about him getting his purpose done. We don't have to worry about what what God gets done. We have to worry about obeying God and doing what we're supposed to do. And one of the things that we're supposed to do together is to make God's wisdom known in the heavenly places to principalities and powers. Now, that means you don't need to go on to public display. You are on public display as Christians we are on public display, not necessarily on the earth, but in the heavens. And that should give us some hope, and that should give us some encouragement, and that should give us a bigger sense of purpose than we have. Unhappily today, we view the church as somewhere where Christians need to be entertained, or the lost need to be entertained, or reached as if the church is a mission. But that is not God's purpose in the church which is his body, his eternal purpose in Christ is that the church which is his body is an elevated company into the heavens where God's wisdom is displayed to principalities and powers. And you may say, well, who are these principalities and powers? Are they our enemies? Are they our friends? I'll say this, they are both. The, the heavens is in conflict. That's why that's why we have these mysteries laid out for us. The first four, why, while they the the way they are, we understand the heavens are in conflict today. The heavens won't always be in conflict, 
but they're in conflict today, and part of our warfare is merely to demonstrate the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ as we assemble together. After all, the Lord Jesus Christ made an open show of his, of his victory over Satan in, in his cross, as we're taught in the book of Colossians. He made an open show, and his blood-bought people, when they're assembled together, confessing that the Lord Jesus Christ died for their sins, remembering uh, his death until he comes, makes that truth known in the heavens uh, uh, in such a way as giving great glory to God. Now, I want to look at one other scripture, and then, well, we, of course, we we just introduced the subject of the church, which is his body here, and then we'll go on to the next parable from here. But I want to introduce one other scripture, and that is in Ephesians chapter 5, where we find the, the, the very commonly quoted scripture, verse 30 through, 30 through 33, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones, and we should think about how it is that those that came to David in the cave of Adullam say, We are flesh of thy flesh and bone of thy bones. We should think of that when we read that. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, shall be joined unto his wife. They too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Friends, the church is members of his body. The church is one. The church is composed of Gentiles and Jews. Of course, it's cast in the mystery as as a Gentile body, it is predominantly Gentile, but we we know uh, we, and we can detail out how it is that neither Jew nor Gentile comp- compose the church. But this is a great mystery, and we ought to hold it. 